Good morning. If you care to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27, that's where we'll be studying this morning. Matthew chapter 27. Before we begin, let's bow before the Lord together in prayer. Our Father, we bow before you this morning, a thankful people. How thankful we are that out of your goodness to your people, you've given us this another opportunity to meet together with our brothers and sisters and to worship you, to praise and magnify the name of our Lord and Savior. Father, I pray you'd send your spirit upon us this morning, enable us to worship. Father, I beg of you that you give me a special portion of your spirit to be able to rightly divide the word of truth and to speak comfortably to the hearts of your people, to be able to to preach Christ, point sinners to Christ with a with a heart of of love and faith for Christ and caring for people, that we might be able to see the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Father, give your people a special portion of your spirit. That we might be able to hear and enter in by faith to the things of our Lord Jesus Christ that we hear, and to believe him more, to love him more, to trust him more. Father, what a blessing that you've given us to have a place of public worship where we can meet together and worship. And Father, I pray you'd protect it for many years to come, if it could be possible until you return, that this would be a place where sinners can come and hear the Savior, where your sheep can come and be fed in the green pastures of your word. Father, we thank you for the children that you've given to us, and I pray you'd bless them especially in this hour, that you'd bless our teachers with a word, a lesson for our children, and Father, that you'd take this time to plant the seeds of faith in their hearts, that you might cause it to grow to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ in thy time. Father, for those who are sick and afflicted, we pray for them. We pray your hand of healing. We pray your hand of direction, and especially, Father, your presence of comfort, that you'd comfort their hearts, that you'd give them a fulfillment of your promise, that your grace is sufficient, that you give them grace sufficient for the hour. Father, we pray for our country and our world at this time and such a dark, dark day in which we live. Father, I pray that you would show us your glory through the preaching of Christ, your, your glory and the redemption of your people that No matter how dark the day, you're still in the business of saving your people, calling out your people. Father, give us a a revival in the land, a refreshing of the gospel, going forth in power for your glory and to bless the hearts of your people, we pray. All these things we ask in that name which is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, I've titled our lesson this morning, What We See at the Cross. I took my title from Matthew 27, verse 36. And sitting down, they watched him there. Now I have a pretty good idea what those self-righteous, spiritually dead religious people saw at the cross. I got a pretty good idea. But my question to you and me this morning is we sit and we look at him there. We look at Christ on the cross by faith. What is it that we see? What is it that we see? Now, if the Lord will enable us to see it, 
The whole of the gospel is on display at the cross. Every attribute of God and every attribute of the character of man is seen more clearly at the cross than anywhere else. At the cross, the whole purpose of God concerning the salvation of his people is on display. At Calvary, this is what we see happening. The eternal counsel of God is being carried out. Now, we don't have time to cover all the eternal counsel and purpose of God in one sitting. We don't have time to do that in a lifetime, do we? But I want to give you four things from our text that I see by faith this morning as we look at the cross. And the first thing I see is this. I see the nature of man. Now the whole sinful nature of man is summed up best with this statement. It's our hatred of God. Yes, man is sinful. Yes, man does things that are wrong. Yes, man cannot do anything to please God. Those things are all true about our sinful nature. But this is most clearly defines the nature of man. Man by nature hates God Almighty. Now, I grant you we don't hate the God of our imagination. You know, if we made up a God, we made him up in a, such a way that we love him, didn't we? Otherwise, we wouldn't have made him up. But man by nature hates God as he is. Hates God as he's been pleased to reveal himself in the scriptures. And you don't see that anywhere more clearly than you see it at Calvary. See, this has been man's problem from the moment Adam fell. We don't want God ruling over us. That was Adam's problem and it's our problem to this day. But God does rule over us. He does. And man hates him for it. We don't want somebody to, to rule over us. We don't want to bow. We don't want to have to bow and worship to God. We don't have to, we don't want to have to be dependent upon God. Just like our father Adam, our, the desire of our nature is to get rid of God. Be our own God, make up our own rules. And you see man's hatred of God more clearly at Calvary than you see it anywhere else. Look at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. Now the whole band of soldiers. I don't know how many soldiers that was, but the whole band of them gathered together like they needed that whole band of soldiers to guard one man. You know why they all got together? Because every last one of them wanted in on this one. There were other crucifixions. Eh, maybe they went there, maybe they didn't. They all went to this one because they all wanted in on it because of man's hatred of God. Look at verse 28. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. After, and, and they spit upon him. And they took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Now, this whole band of soldiers, they stripped the Lord naked. They did it to make him ashamed. Now, they had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea that they're giving us a spiritual picture. This is the sinner's substitute, being stripped of his righteousness, being stripped naked and put in a position of shame before his father. 
so that he could make his people righteous. They, had, they weren't interested in that. They had no idea why they were doing it. They just did it to shame the Lord. And the reason that they shamed him the most was as king. This is the way that they mocked him as king. They mocked him as king because that's the reason man hates God the most, as king. They mocked him. They, they put it in this, this uh, scarlet robe was probably just was probably like an old rug. Maybe it was an old tattered soldier's outer garment or something. They put that on him like that was the royal robes of the king. And they put a reed in his hand as the scepter. You know why they chose a reed? Because the reed didn't have any strength to it. And that's the way they viewed him as king. That's what they're trying to make him see as king. You have no real authority. There's no strength in your authority. They made a crown out of thorns and shoved it on his head. And blood you know, started running down and they mocked him as king. They said, look at the king. What a king. Does that look like a king to you? And then they spit on him. They spit on him to show their utter contempt of Christ, the sovereign king. And they led him away then to crucify him because they hated him as king. That was the charge they wrote over his cross. This is the reason he deserves to die. He's king. Look at verse 37. And they set up over his head his accusation written. This is why he deserves to die. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And that's what Pilate wrote and, and the chief priest said, no, said he, right, he said he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, what I've written, I've written. This is the king of the Jews. That's why they killed him. That's why they hated him so much. That's a clear display of man's sin nature, our hatred of Christ. All right, the second thing I see is this. I see Christ the willing sacrifice. Now this whole band of soldiers gathered together to mock the Lord and to take him to be crucified. But you know, even that whole band of soldiers couldn't have held our Lord against his will. Now he, he could have walked away from them just as easily as he did so many other times. The only reason that band of soldiers was able to mock our Lord and mistreat him the way that they did and take him and nail him to a piece of wood Christ went willingly. That's the only reason. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He never tried to get away. If he, if he wanted to, he would have. He, he went there willingly. Look at verse 34. They gave him vinegar to, to drink mixed with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Now this vinegar mixed with gall, what it is, it, it's old wine probably cheap wine, and it's turned bitter. So it tastes just like vinegar. There's no good taste left to it at all. And they mixed it with gall. And from the best I can find, that's some sort of bitter herb that they mixed in there. And they, they would give this to people who are being crucified to, to kind of confuse the mind and make the, the pain easier to endure. Also, it was given because it was meant to prolong the life to prolong the agony of the one suffering and dying so the people watching could have fun longer. And they put that up to the Savior's lips and he refused to drink it because he would not have anything dull his pain. He was both willing and he was determined to suffer the full wrath of God against the sin of his people. 
because he was determined to save them from condemnation. And the only way his people could be saved from condemnation is if the Savior drank the cup of God's wrath dry. Even the very the dregs of it. He suffered it all. He endured it all. He tasted it all without anything to dull the pain. Without any hint of, of mercy from his Father. He did that so that his people would be saved. He wasn't forced to suffer all that for his people. He did it willingly. Because he loves his people. He loves his people. Now that's amazing. Amazing grace, isn't it? That he would do that for a people like you and me. The third thing I see at the cross is the purpose of God being carried out. The eternal purpose of God. Now these men, they did everything that their wicked hearts wanted to do. From, from the men, the, the Jews that took him and the Sanhedrin that tried him and Pilate and this, the, the soldiers, they all did exactly what they wanted to do. Exactly what they chose to do. But you know what they ended up doing? They ended up carrying out God's will that had been prophesied for over 4,000 years. And they carried it out to a T. They accomplished God's will. That's what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And oh, what a a day that was. But that's what he preached. You men took the Lord of glory and crucified him. You know what you did? You accomplished God's eternal will and purpose. See, everything that these men did, everything fulfilled the scriptures. It's like they just went back to the Old Testament scriptures like it's a, a, a script in a, in, a, in a play. Say, what should we do next? What should we do next? What, what are we supposed to say next? Let's not get anything out of order. <laughs> you know why they did it that way? Everything happened just like God said it would happen starting 4,000 years ago to show us they're not accomplishing their will. They're accomplishing the eternal will of God in the redemption of his people. Do you know why that whole band of soldiers got together to mock and torture our Lord and none of them was missing? It was to fulfill the prophecy in Psalm 22. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. That whole band got together and just with their just biting and devouring like dogs and enclosed the Lord because that was the will of God. And they accomplished it. You know why they made the Savior a crown of thorns? Why didn't they use some other material? We were playing a game the, the what night? Friday night. We remember that paper crown? That probably looked kind of silly. You know, somebody in the game gets to wear this, this paper crown. That's not a king. Kings don't wear paper crowns. Why didn't they just make him a paper crown? That, they, they could have mocked him with a paper crown, couldn't they? Why did they make him a crown of thorns? They did that to show us that the Savior was taking the curse of sin away from his people. Where's the first time we read of thorns in Scripture? Where's the first time thorns appeared in God's creation? It was after Adam fell and the ground was cursed for his sake and the Lord told him thorns and thistles are going to grow in your crops and make it hard for you. Thorns are the result of the curse of sin. They put that crown of thorns on the head of our Savior to show us he's carrying away 
the curse of sin for his people by being made a curse for them. You know why they spit on the Savior? I know to them, it was just to show their hatred of Christ the King. This is what I think of you as Christ the King. They spit on him. That's why they thought they did it. But actually, they did it to fulfill the Scriptures. And in fulfilling the Scriptures, they showed us everything that's happening here at the cross is God's will being carried out. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. When they tried to shame him and they spit on him, he didn't try to hide his face from them. He took that shame because he's bearing the shame of the sin of his people. Look at verse 34. They gave him vinegar to drink mixed with gall, and when he tasted thereof, he would not drink. Now, why did they give him vinegar mixed with gall? I mean, he was so thirsty. Why didn't they give him water? Why didn't they give him something else to drink? Well, I know it was their meanness. I understand that. They were trying to prolong his agony. But really, the reason that they did it was to fulfill God's will. To fulfill the prophecy, Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. You know, you'd think one of these members of the Sanhedrin, one of these scribes, who every day of his life, I guess with, with the exception of the Sabbath day, transcribed the scriptures, hand wrote out the scriptures. They read a line and wrote a line, read a line. And you'd think somewhere in their mind they would cross it. You know, I remember that. I remember David wrote that in the song. Something's going on. It never crossed their mind. They were fulfilling the will of God. Verse 35. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. Now, why did they cast lots? They rolled dice or they pick straws or something. Why do they do that? Why do they have some sort of game of chance to part his garments among them? Why didn't the most senior guy just say, boys, I'm taking it all? <laughs> Why didn't somebody say, okay, well, I'm taking this and I'll give you this and I'll give you this? Why did they cast lots? Why did they have this game of chance to decide who would, who would get the Lord's clothes? To show us they are fulfilling the will of God. David prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 18, they parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. They all, they, all they were doing was fulfilling the will of God. Verse 38. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. Now why did they crucify the Lord between two thieves? Why didn't they crucify the Lord alone? We are, we've seen their hatred of him as the king. Why didn't they crucify him alone so he'd be the sole attraction? So all the attention would be focused on him. All the hatred could be focused on him. Why these two criminals? One on either side of him. Why wouldn't the Lord put on the left and the two, two thieves on the right? I mean, even the order that they were put, the Lord in the middle. Why did they do that? To fulfill the scriptures. Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. Now, the, the Lord was innocent personally of ever committing any sin. He never sinned, did he? These two men, they, they, they sinned. I mean, they, they sinned so badly, other sinful, rotten men said, 
The only thing we can do to these fellows is put them to death. We've got to get them out of our society. They're, trans- they're the transgressors. Our Savior was numbered with them. You know why he was numbered with them? He was bearing the iniquity of his people. He was even bearing the iniquity of one of those things, wasn't he? <laughs> Verse 39. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that, de- thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. (laughs) No, they wouldn't have. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he'll have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. You know, they cast the same in his teeth because they said, you come down from the cross and take us down with you. You know, all this was was self-serving on their part. Now, these exact words that they used, they could have mocked the Lord with many other things. Why these words? Why these exact words? It was to fulfill the scriptures and show us what's happening at the cross is not man accomplishing his will. It's God accomplishing his will. Everything had to happen just exactly this way so that God's people would be saved from their sin. Psalm 22, verse 7. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. (laughs) They said exactly what David said they'd say, what, at least 2,000 years prior to this. (laughs) To show us this is God's will being carried out. And you know, the Savior did trust in the Father, didn't he? He did trust in the Lord. He trusted that the Father would do what he said he'd do, what he promised he would do in the covenant of grace. The Father promised, I'll save a people. If you, I'll accept a people. You take their sin away from them. You make them righteous by your obedience, by your sacrifice, I'll accept them. So the Savior trusted the Father and stayed on the cross till the transaction was done. He stayed there on the cross suffering because he had faith. He trusted his Father would do what he promised he'd do. He stayed there to save his people from their sins. And when they said here in verse 42, he saved others, himself he cannot save. I'm telling you, truer words were never spoken. He saved others, himself he cannot save. The Savior could not save himself by coming down from the cross. He couldn't. Now it's not that he lacked the power to do it. He certainly had the power to do it. The Savior could not save himself if he's going to fulfill his Father's will. The Savior could not save himself and come down from the cross if he's going to do what he promised to do in the covenant of grace. And take the sin of his people. He couldn't do it. If he came down from the cross, he'd break his word to his father. The Savior could not save himself. If he was going to save his people. Now the guilty must die. The Savior had been made guilty of the sin of his people. So he died. 
He did not save himself. He died to save his people from their sin. See, we're saved by the faith of Christ. Yes, we receive salvation by faith in Christ. But our salvation is accomplished by the faith of Christ. The faithfulness of Christ to do everything it took to put away the sin of his people. It's the faithfulness of Christ to do everything that it took to satisfy his father's justice, to satisfy his father's holy wrath against sin so that his people would be saved. We're saved by the faith of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ to do everything he promised he would do. And he did it. He would not save himself. Now look at verse 46. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now you know why this Savior made this loud cry. This cry has echoed through the ages, hasn't it? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now why did he cry that? To let us know the Father's will is being carried out here. The Father forsook the Son at Calvary. The Father and the Son are one. Yet the Father forsook his Son at Calvary because his Son had been made sin. Now the Father's presence was still felt, wasn't it? His his wrath was still felt. His justice was still felt. But the Father took his loving presence away from his Son and he gave his Son all of the wrath, all of the punishment, that the sin of his people deserved. He forsook his son and plunged the sword of justice into his fellow, into the heart of his very son. You know why the father did that? So that he will never, ever, ever, ever have reason to forsake his people. I know sometimes we feel forsaken, don't we? Sometimes we pray the heavens are brass. Sometimes we can't feel the Father's presence with us. I'm telling you this. Christ died for us. The Father will never, ever, ever forsake His people. Ever. Because He forsook His Son, our substitute. At Calvary, the Savior accomplished the eternal will of God in the redemption of His people. Brethren, it's done. This is such good news. That's a good point of doctrine. Christ fulfilled the eternal will and purpose of God. Oh, that's good news. If Christ finished it, this dead sinner doesn't have to do one thing to finish it. He finished it for me. Isn't that good news? All right, here's the fourth thing I see. I see a new and living way opened for sinners to come to God. Verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now the moment that the Lord gave up the ghost, 
that thick veil. And you may remember the veil we studied. It's, it's about that thick, about four fingers thick. And it hung loosely between separating the holy place from the holy of holies. And from what they say, you know, the way it hung loosely, even if somebody came in there on a horse and tried to chop it with a sword, they, they couldn't have done it. It was too thickly woven and hung loosely. Uh, nothing man-made could, could have cut that thing, torn that thing. But the very moment that the Savior gave up the ghost, that veil was rent in two from top to bottom. It couldn't be put back together. Now before that happened, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, bringing the blood of the sacrifice. But now, anybody can go in there. Before, before Christ died, well, that veil hung in there. Nobody knew what was back there. Nobody could satisfy their curiosity and see what was back there. The only person that ever saw it was the high priest once a year. Now, anybody can go in there. I like this. The veil wasn't rent from side to side. So that a tall sinner like Dan couldn't go in there, but a short sinner like me could. It was torn top to bottom. The way's wide open. Anybody now can come into the presence of God where the glory of God dwelt above the mercy seat. Now anybody can come. Let me show you that in Hebrews chapter 12. This is a new and living way. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 18. Now where remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, his flesh. See, this thing is not a, a, a veil made of linen. It's his flesh. This is not a picture. It's the person. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. See, now we don't come through a, a legal ceremony, through, the, through a veil of linen. We come through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his blood, through his sacrifice, through his person. This is a new way as opposed to the old way of the law. And it's a living way. It's a way that gives life. That's why all these people were raised from the dead. The saints that slept arose. God's given life to his people. See, the way of Christ is a life-giving way. The way of the law was death, wasn't it? Well, that Old Testament high priest, when he went into that Holy of Holies, he was concerned. Well, you better do everything just right, God said, or I'll kill you. There's no fear in coming to Christ. No fear at all. Come to Him for life. He accepts sinners. Now in closing, let me give you one thing. We'll take all of this and apply it to our hearts directly. Verse 32. And as they came out, they, man, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Uh, this man, um, Simon, was a disciple of the Lord, and they found him, and this disciple of the Lord carried the cross because the Lord physically could not carry it at that time. And here's the picture. If you and I would be saved, 
We must take up the cross of Christ. We must take up his cross. Now, I know that there's a lot of things went through everybody's head right there, and there's a lot of false things out there about what taking up your cross means. Here's primarily what it means. It's to say, it's to confess, it's to believe that everything I see here on the cross, everything that the cross says about man, that's true of me. Everything that the cross says about Christ, that's true. That's true to me. He's the Savior of sinners. I need Him. Everything that the cross says about the eternal will and purpose of God, I'm taking that and say that's true about me. If God didn't choose to save me before He created anything, Jonathan, He sure didn't do it after. <laughs> this has to be the eternal will and purpose of God because none of it can be dependent on me. It all has to be dependent upon Christ. The cross says that the Lord Jesus Christ is the successful Savior of sinners. He gives life to his people because he died for them. When I take up his cross, this is what I'm saying. The only hope I have of life is Christ died for me. See, taking up that cross, just saying all these things are true about me. I believe Christ. I trust Christ. I rest in him. He's my Savior my, and my King. All right, I hope the Lord will bless that too.